Go for Leadership, the podcast with Daniel and Gerd. Hello and welcome for today's episode of the Go for Leadership podcast. With me today is Dr. Therene Marie, and I'm very uh, welcome her to the show. Hello, Daniel, and hello, everyone listening in today. Go for Leadership interviews. Perfect. Therin, as we usually ask uh, the guests to introduce uh, themselves, uh, I give you 30 seconds. 30 seconds. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be with you today, Daniel, and it's great uh, to be with all of your listeners. It's an honor to speak to all of you. I am Dr. Taryn Marie Stayskull. I founded a company called Resilience Leadership Institute, and I am the founder and chief resilience officer. Uh, prior to that, I was leading uh, executive leadership development and talent strategy at Nike. And I also led global leadership development for Cigna, a global health insurer for a number of years. Awesome. And I think to, to develop people in particular also by helping uh, leaders to become better leaders, you already should have a, a certain perspective or definition what, what leadership or good or bad leadership maybe is, or how would you define leadership? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I was at Nike, uh, Nike had a tagline where they would say, you know, we were there in support of athletes, right? And then there'd be like a little asterisk after athlete, and it would say, if you have a body, you're an athlete, right? Uh -huh. And I started to think about that relative to leadership development. And so in some of my writing, I've started to put an asterisk above leader or leadership. And then the asterisk reads, if you have a heart and a mind, you're a leader. And that's really important because so often we think of leadership as being a title a scope of responsibility, direct reports, influence, right? And the idea is if we really think about it, there's probably at least one person in each of our lives that looks up to us, that sees us as a role model, whether that's in a professional or a corporate setting at work, if we you know, lead a team, maybe we mentor someone that's behind us in our career. Uh, maybe it's a niece or nephew or a neighbor, you know? Uh, and so the point is, we are all leaders. And when we start to embrace that, you know, when we stop looking around and we say, well, when are the leaders going to come? Or when is the Calvary going to show up? You know, we are the ones that we have been waiting for. We are all leaders. And therefore, we all have great power. And therefore, with great power comes great responsibility. I love that. And like we said in the in the welcome phase of, uh, uh, let's say, the behind the, the certain, um, we discussed that um, that uh, leaders uh, in, in particular, uh, let's say, um, the, the leadership development has a lot to do with, with ourselves. And I think that's a great, uh, great definition uh, of yourself, uh, of leadership, uh, that it begins with, with ourselves. So how uh, in your day-to-day -day work, if you work with leaders, how how do you bring this message across that uh, change or develop, uh, development, let's say, starts with with the leader itself? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this occurs both personally and professionally, right? Mm -hmm. And so, in order to bring about this idea that you know change starts with us, 
right? And of course, I'm not the first one to say this. You know, Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, be the change that you want to see, right? Michael Jackson wrote a whole song about the man in the mirror and the change starting with the person that we see in the mirror. And so oftentimes when people say, you know, I wish I had this or I wish I had that uh, in romantic relationships, you know, people will say, well, you know, I want to meet someone special. I want to meet someone wonderful. And I'll say, oh, yeah. And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, oh, well, like, what are the qualities of the person that you would like to fall in love with? And they'll list out, you know, the qualities, right? Well, they're kind and they're supportive and they listen and they're funny and they're adventurous and they like to travel. And I say, great. Now go become all of those things and you will attract those things to you right? And so within the context of our professional lives, you know, rather than saying, you know, we wish things were a certain way, we wish people were different, we are within our own control. And so the difference starts with us. So um, I I like that a lot. Uh, And I think uh, it has a lot to do with self-reflection in order to make yourself aware that uh, you might need to change in a certain way. Uh, What I find always difficult is um, how to, um, let's say, maintain the certain way of of change. Um, How do you foster, let's say, and and make it a a daily habit, so to say? Mm -hmm. Well, well, now I'm going to say something opposite of what I just said, which is, the other side of that coin, which is, you know, we are the ones we've been waiting for, you know, the cavalry isn't coming, we are the cavalry, you know, become the leader, you know, that you want to see or you want to have in your life. The, the flip side of that coin is companies and organizations have a tremendous responsibility to foster leadership, to create the environment in which leaders thrive, to create the environment in which people are able to be resilient, the environment in which people are able to live and work in a sustainable way. And so the the other side of that coin is, you know, that resilience is a team sport. And so what that means is when we invest in ourselves, when we we invest in our own development, uh, our leadership strengths and skills, when we invest in our own healing, you know, that, you know, doing the good and hard work of looking at ourselves and the trauma and the wounds that we've had and what's holding us back, how that plays out in our personal life and how that plays out in our professional life, you know, around the office and and the Zoom room, right? Um, Anything we do to enhance ourselves, you know, it's, it's the rising tide of humanity that lifts all boats, right? So, so your healing, your reflection, your introspection, Daniel, is my healing, is my reflection, is my introspection, right? We're all deeply connected, Uh, is my belief. And resilience is a team sport, right? So if we're on the same team, your up-leveling your leadership is going to invite me to up-level myself. And me up-leveling myself is going to invite you to up-level. In addition to that, you know, we're not acting sort of on an island or in isolation or in a vacuum, right? So organizations systemically have a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous opportunity a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility to support their people are our people in reducing stress, in reducing burnout, 
in managing workloads and supporting mental health and creating environments that are sustainable and foster and foster resilience. So that's another important piece to mention. But the question that you asked me is, you know, how do we do that, right? How do we create, you know, a sustainable habit? Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are much better at fostering and facilitating habits and routines than I am. So I'll point to one of them, right? Um, Charles Duhigg, uh, The Power of Habit is, you know, a wonderful book if you haven't read it or as a listener, if you haven't read it. And it really looks at, you know, what are the things that embed um, habit and routine and, and how do we truly make change over time? Because we know as humans, that's difficult to do. Absolutely. You, you touched a topic that I think very interesting is um, that uh, you are not on a single island. So you are within a group of people uh, in a normal setting, let's say, even if, if within a family, right? Uh, you have maybe a, a partner, friends, uh, kids, whatever. So how do you integrate them in, in this, let's say, development routine, let's say, um, let's say, put it into uh, the professional life. So how do you... Um, open up the team for an open feedback uh, philosophy or culture so that, that you push yourself, let's say, within the team up. Because I mean, in my experience, there are always some that, that are willing to do, but there are also those little ones that may are not willing to do. So how do you get the group jointly together to do it? Yeah, so, so many things about that, Daniel. It's a great question. So the first thing that I'll mention just contextually is we are in this incredible moment of human reflection, of human inflection, where for the first time in a century, we are sharing a universal experience with every other human around that around the globe, right? Uh -huh. um, seven billion people connected by this universal experience of a global pandemic called COVID-19. So there's this tremendous universal connection that exists between all of us in this moment in time, right? I mean, think about when was the last time you turned on the news and you saw a civil war someplace or a famine someplace and you're like, gosh, that sounds really rough and I cannot relate to that, right? We have this moment where COVID-19 is a common universal human thread that is tying us all together. And so we're in this moment of universality and really understanding that we are all deeply connected. You know, the greatest lie that we ever told ourselves as humans is that we're individuals and that our behavior happens in isolation and, and doesn't impact anyone else, right? The greatest truth of what it means to be human and to be a sentient being is to know that our actions, our behavior, our thoughts deeply and appreciably impact the world and everyone else and everything around us. So certainly with the pandemic, we have this universal experience. Now there's unique experiences too, right? We all have a unique experience. Your experience with the pandemic and COVID-19 won't be, won't be my experience, right? So there's, there's uniqueness, right? Which we get to value and appreciate. And there's this universal, right? And so that's tremendously exciting to me because then what you say next is we have this sort of moment where we really get to see that we're all connected. And so then when we get people together and, and, you know, I think your question was about behavior change, right? How do you foster, you know, behavior change on a team? And there's really two ways that you do that, right? Um, the first one is as a leader, you role model the behavior that you want to see 
right? And by doing that, you encourage others that one, this behavior is going to be accepted. And two, that this is a psychologically safe place where other people can act in that way. So if you want to drive authenticity on your team, right? If you want to drive a, a, a feedback driven culture, right? As you mentioned, then you as the leader must take the first step and role model that so people have an example for what that looks like. They know that behavior will be accepted and two, they know it'll be psychologically safe, right? The next thing that you do after you role model the behavior is you reward the behavior, right? So when people give you feedback, you reward it, right? When people act in an authentic way, that was a tongue twister. When people act in an authentic way, you know, you reward that if that's, if that's what you're after, right? And so now you're rewarding people to show them, you know, not only, you know, my, my um, talk matches my walk, right? What, what I'm asking for people are doing, you know, and then, you know, you go to the other people on the team, right? So the early adopters you reward, right? And then the people that are sort of lagging, right? Um, you know, start to look at how can you reward them? Now, if people don't come along with you, right? Then that's a conversation around, hey, we're doing this thing, right? We're giving feedback. We're all getting authentic, you know? Um, and, and then we get to figure out as leaders for the people that are not coming along with us, why aren't they coming along with us, right? And there's, and there's two ways, there's two reasons that people don't come along with us, right? There's skill and there's will, right? That's what it boils down to, right? Either people don't have the skills to come along with us. Hey, I see you being authentic. Hey, I see you giving feedback. Even though I've seen it, I'm not sure I know how to do that, right? So they need to adopt the skills, right? Or there's will where they have the skills, but they're like, I don't want to be authentic. That's not what I'm about. I don't want to give feedback, right? So it's either it's either a, a, a won't do, and you know, in terms of skill or a can't do, right, in terms of will. And that's what you have to figure out for the people that aren't adopting. And, you know, we do our level best when we're up-leveling our teams to help people grow and change around us. And once we've tried to grow and change the people around us in all of those myriad ways, and if people don't come along, you know, then we think about changing the people around us, right? But I, I love that. And I think that that's uh, spot on, on on how to um, evolve as a team. And uh, that brings back, let's say, the responsibility as well as a leader and as a role model. Uh, and as a, uh, somebody that, that reflects uh, is empathic also understanding why maybe there are individuals not following or not, um, let's say, like you said, willing or having the capabilities uh, of, of uh, uh, transforming, let's say, or building up to the model that, that, that you want to foster in the team. So when working at Nike, uh, in particular with, with the leadership development, so how how do you prepare uh, new generations to become good leaders? Can, can you give me a hint also? What is your perspective on, on that path? Yeah. So when I was working in, at Nike, I was working in executive development and talent strategy. And so what that meant was I'd worked for a number of years at Cigna as global head of leadership development. And when I went to Nike, I had the opportunity to have a much narrower role mm -hmm. um, really focused on the top of the house, right? Mark Parker, his executive team, and uh, our top vice presidents within the organization. 
So in that role, I wasn't really working directly with, you know, the, the next, you know, sort of generation of leaders. And what was exciting to me is sort of working at the top of the house in that way, what we got to think about was like broadly across the organization, as we're developing leaders, you know, in the highest kind of roles, you know, what is that cascading effect, right, that then is going to uh, trickle down to um, leaders and, and support, you know, those that, that are emerging. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, I joined Nike uh, shortly after, and this is all public information that was in the, you know, in the news where 11 very senior executives uh, were asked to leave the organization largely because of gender discrimination against women. So, I came into the organization at a really kind of key inflection point at a really important time where Nike had the opportunity to respond to this notion, right? That they were really lagging in terms of gender equity. And in fact, the careers of many women were highly you know, negatively impacted by the behavior of some of these senior executives. And so when we think about, you know, how, how do we sort of develop the next generation of leaders, if you will, if I stay with this thread of, of developing women, you know, this is a really important topic right now in the midst of the pandemic. In the United States, uh, 2 million women have left the workforce in the last year. You know, the, the, the gap between the number of men that are employed and the number of women that are employed is widening, right, through the pandemic. In addition to that, if you look at the job numbers, you know, in the United States, for example, in the, in the month of December, in December of 2020, we had uh, 150,000 people, right, leave the workforce. 100% of them were women. So, you know, there's, there's, of course, many things that we can do to support, you know, emerging leaders. I'm, I'm concerned right now about the support that we're offering women in the, in the workforce, you know. And, um, you know, what we're finding is that um, <laughs> women are exhausted. <laughs> I'm exhausted, you know. I have a, a, a nine-year-old and a soon-to-be seven-year-old. Uh, and, you know, when the pandemic started, they were eight and five, you know, and trying to, to juggle virtual learning, which literally took like six to eight hours a day with like multiple, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, it becomes like a full-time job, you know, and then you're like, and then your kids don't just want you to be a teacher, they also, you know, want you to be a mom, right? Like play with us, read us books, right? And, and make dinner and do all those things, right? So I was sleeping like four hours a night because I was working a shift with them for virtual learning, you know, and then working a shift as a mom, right? And then putting in a third shift in order to be able to run my business, right? In the midst of the pandemic as a head of my own household and, and at the time a single woman. And so, you know, I think we really need to be thinking hard about how we're supporting women with families right now, you know, whether that's permission to, to drop the ball before they drop out of the workforce. I mean, certainly that's got to be better. 
um, whether that's orienting people more toward progress as opposed to perfection. You know, women to a greater degree than men tend to be perfectionists. You know, there's research to demonstrate when, when women look at a, a job description, if we don't have like a hundred percent of the things in the job description, we don't go for the job, but men will look at it and be like, Oh, I've got 60%, you know, my application, right. By the way, I'm one of the women who like would submit if I only have 60% of the stuff I might submit if I only have 30, if I want the job, but the vast majority of women, you know, don't, don't do that. Right. Um, or whether that's, you know, subsidizing childcare for women, you know, sending somebody to the house who can take care of the kids for a couple of hours, you know, during the day or creating a hybrid work schedule where women who are working in, you know, for traditional corporations and companies have the opportunity to work, you know, various hours around their children's virtual learning, right? I mean, these are some really kind of tactical and practical elements. And, you know, we're in this moment where there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of burnout and, and women, you know, men are stressed out too, right? Um, but the, the, folks that are leaving the workforce are primarily female. I like that swing, Taryn, because at the end, um, um, of course, I mean, we are all stressed out, but I think that in particular is something that uh, we as uh, people that deal with leaders, um, I think uh, need to also take that into consideration, right? That you have your ups and downs, and in particular um, now um, within a female leader that, uh, you can't ignore, but there are certain, of course, uh, responsibilities uh, uh, attached, right? You, you have set it by yourself. Um, you have kids to deal with uh, in the pandemic. You are, you are a teacher, you are a chef, uh, you are a, a, a kindergartenist, uh, you are literally all what uh, what has to be covered. Uh, you are a consultant for the kids, you, you are a mom, you, you um, I don't know, whatever it is. So, and, and how also organizations can be much more, let's say, open for such, uh, let's say, uh, or, or to, to, to foster environments where actually female leaders can, can perform in this, let's say, difficult challenge. Because at the end, um, I think, uh, like you said, why, why things happens like that, that, that female leaders uh, lose first the job before maybe a male leader lose the job. So how, how we can overcome that, that habits and that, yeah, um, that uh, unnice uh, ac actions from, from companies. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a lot of the suggestions that I mentioned, right, which are um, to subsidize in-home childcare, I mean, just provide in-home childcare in the first place, right? Access to it and perhaps, you know, subsidize it uh, because childcare is expensive. Uh -huh. um, you know, to offer hybrid work schedules, you know, for, for everyone, right? Uh -huh. um, men too, right? That way, you know, women and men that are in heterosexual relationships and partnerships, like, you know, they, they can each maybe work a few non-traditional hours and also, you know, make sure the kids get on their, their virtual learning and their, and their Zoom calls. Um, so having those, you know, hybrid schedules, um, talking with, you know, our workforce about the dangers of perfectionism, that this is simply a luxury that we can't afford right now and, and to prioritize progress over perfection. Um, you know, to, to look at, you know, work products, right. And to figure out, you know, what are sort of the superfluous 
elements of a work product, right? Like maybe there's a template we can create. Maybe we can simplify a procedure. Maybe when we have a deliverable, you know, we can figure out, you know, what's sort of the minimal minimum viable product, right? Sort of the MVP around that deliverable um, to allow people to continue in, to engage, but recognize that people are being pulled, you know, in a, in a myriad of, of different directions, right? So I think, you know, those are some places, you know, where we can start. I, I like that. And I think something that I've found out as well in my professional career, it's so hard sometimes for organization to, to define what should be the output. Because at the end, I think everybody can, um, as a leader as well, or within a project, uh, or as individual employee, uh, once there is a clear definition of the output, um, at the end, my, my former boss always said, I mean, at the end, it counts the result. How you achieve the result, I mean, you could spend hundreds of hours trying to get to, to the same result, or you could just think of it and do one hour and this is a smart invested hour and you come to the same result. So I think um, uh, to to get to this point, you, you need diversity to get the best people, uh, be it male, uh, woman, uh, uh, different kind of um, cultures, uh, backgrounds uh, to come up to that level of professionalism and perfectionism uh, that uh, you really are output driven. But to do to come to that point, it's very essential that companies think of it. What what is the expectation I have to 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 leaders uh, or to organizations or to teams? And I found that out that that that's really hard sometimes to to get to make it crisp or smart. How to say? Do you, do you, that that does resonate to you, or do you think that that that's a that's a point? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? Clearly defined kind of objectives or results or, or road mapping along, you know, what is expected, right? Sort of what does the output look like or, or what is the, you know, ideal look like, I think is wonderful, you know? Um, in, a, in addition to that, I think there's so there's so much work, right? That that you and and I do um, that maybe isn't project based, right? And the more senior you become in an organization, the more it's about it, it's it's less about output and and more about influence, right? Um, now there there are in sort of like. I don't like the word middle man management really, but I'll just use it. So we all sort of know what we're talking about, but you know, there's, there's the working leader, right. Um, or the, the manager who also produces, right. So in many organizations, in addition to leading teams and people, you know, that individual also has their own work product, their own output, their own expectations, right. Um, as you get higher in the organization, right. How you influence and how you lead becomes a greater part, you know, of that role. Um, and so, you know, I think crystallizing some of the squishier elements of that around like, how do you generate followership? How do you ensure that you're communicating powerfully and prolifically across your organization? How do you ensure that people are getting the message, right? Um, those things can be harder, although, you know, no less important to really detail, you know, what does the outcome look like or, or what does success look like? So um, as you worked also within organizations that may have a, let's say, 
gender challenge to to overcome how did you how did you uh, brought into senior executives that there, there should be not no relevance let's say which which gender it is it's just about uh, getting the best best person whomever it is for the for the for the right role so how, how did you brought this into the 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 dna of of an organization yeah um gosh there's 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 so much here um oof, where do i start um well the the first thing is um you know we we all have biases mm-hmm. that we bring you know to work and to the interview process and to that process of you know who is you know the person who's the best fit for the role um and one of my favorite books uh i believe it was blink by malcolm gladwell malcolm gladwell talked about how symphonies had you know dramatically more male members of the symphony than female members of the symphony and so what they started doing is they started doing tryouts for the symphony behind a screen so the judges could not see the gender of the individual right whether they were man or woman for the tryout they could only hear the instrument they could only hear the music and i don't remember the percentage but in some you know the the symphony having gone to blind trials behind the screen all of a sudden the seats that they had in their symphony dramatically increased right in terms of what was being held by women and so this is a tremendous sort of illustrative example of sometimes our cognitive biases play tricks on us right because we see a man and we think well a man you know should you know i'm just giving an example should play should be the tuba you know tuba is a male instrument french horn is male you know i don't know but you know we have these sort of biases right and so just objectively saying well how do we find the best person for the job it's really hard to parse out our own biases with that person's own experience right so i think part of finding the best person for the job is finding a way to do blind interviews to some extent right where we're not sort of revealing the person's you know gender later on in addition to that um what we find is that um in my opinion it's not just about finding the right person for the job it's also about finding the right person for the team right mm-hmm. so you know what we know is that teams that are more diverse right initially there's more discomfort there can be less psychological safety initially right but over time those teams that have diversity in gender in ethnicity in race in thought and experience right it's not all seen diversity uh those teams that have diversity actually make better decisions over time right so there's like a wonderful study that was done um on several college campuses where um they brought together groups of students to solve a murder mystery right the students that they brought together that were from the same fraternity or the same sorority after the problem solving exercise they interviewed them and they said you know how did you think you did right and what was that experience like for you the students that came from the same fraternity or the same sorority you know 
who identified with one another already, performed worse, but thought they did better, you know, because we're all together, you know, it's me and you, Daniel, and it's a bunch of our friends and like, we're all agreeing and we're doing great. We're amazing. Right. And so that's what happens, right. With leadership teams and executive teams, it's really hard sometimes you know, not to, not to recognize, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so that seen and unseen diversity is tremendously important. I mean, I forget the statistics, but a company just having like one woman on their board or in the C-suite, you know, revenue increases something like 7% for that business. Right. Because you're starting to tap into this diversity of thought that, you know, we all don't naturally come up with on our own. Right. And then you see the trickle down effect of that diversity within an organization where when you have one woman on the board or in the C-suite, you start to have higher levels of women in the context of that organization. Why is that important? Right. Well, if if you work for Toyota, right, eighty five percent of the purchasing decisions in a household are made by a woman. Right. If you work for Cigna, 85 to 90 percent of the decisions that are made about medical procedures and medical care for other members of the household are made by a woman, right? So you want your organization's composition to reflect the clients and customers that you're trying to serve. I, I like that, and I think that's that's uh, great examples of how to foster foster that and a very. Uh, um, uh, I won't say easy to execute, but uh, very clear hints how, how to evolve uh, as an organization. Thank you so much, Terin. Let's come uh, to the last question. And, and like, uh, like uh, I usually ask, um, what you have said to yourself before you actually started your career? And, and maybe um, also reflecting what we just discussed a little bit would be very awesome to understand from you. Yeah. You know, I, I don't no, I don't know what I said to myself. Um, you know, uh, here, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Here's what happened. I started out believing that I was going to be a clinical psychologist, uh -huh. you know, and then I believed that I was going to sort of build this bridge between call it psychology, clinical psychology, health psychology, neuropsychology, and uh, traditional, you know, physical medicine. Right. And my fellowship and my dissertation when I was getting my doctorate degree was all about bridging these two and how we can create a um, formalized programmatic approach to supporting, um, you know, individuals, couples and families after one person sustained a neurological injury. Right. And then I thought that was going to be my career. And then we were able to expand the aperture of that and create this tremendous programming that reached, you know, thousands of people. And I thought, well, I achieved that goal. So what's next? And then I started to think about leadership, right? So first I was a consultant. Then I went in-house and led global leadership development. Then I went to Nike and led executive development. Now I'm leading my own company as an entrepreneur, having done research on you know, resilience and what makes people resilient and the five practices of particularly resilient people you know, for a decade and a half. And now I'm in the midst of this global inflection point where resilience was nice to have you know, 14 months ago. It's become an imperative. And I've had the you know, tremendous blessing and, and good fortune and, and providence to have researched 
what makes us resilient in leadership and in life for the last decade and a half so that I was ready at this moment, not knowing that it would occur to be of service to my clients, to the teams that I work with, to the executives, to the organizations, to the actors, to the artists, to the athletes. And I don't know what I said to myself before I started because each one of those summits I thought was the pinnacle. And each time I got to that summit, I realized, okay, there's something more that I want to do. So I don't know what I would have said to myself before I started, but what I'd say to myself now, looking back is I'd say, keep going because what you think you're going to achieve is a far cry from what you're actually going to achieve. And it's going to be awesome. I love that. That's a very great uh, final statement. Go for Leadership, the podcast with Daniel and Gerd. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Taryn. All the best. Stay safe. Thank you, Daniel. What an honor. Go for Leadership, the podcast.